Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Before we begin, I, I want to let you know about a new show from Curious Cast that I think you might really, really enjoy. It's called Russia Rising. Putin's Russia has been accused of using internet trolls and hackers and even assassins to influence the West. This new investigative podcast hopes to unravel this, this giant mystery with the help of those who know best. Russian trolls, hackers, Putin supporters, even a former Russian KGB agent. Join Europe Bureau Chief of Global News, Jeff Semple. He goes on a journey to unravel how Russia has gone from tenuous ally to a potential global threat. You can listen to Russia Rising for free at CuriousCast.ca or wherever you're enjoying the ongoing history of new music. Do it. Trust me, you'll love it. There are people who still believe that the resurrection of vinyl is a fad, a passing trend, something of which people will tire and will all move on. This, frankly, is insanity. It's, it's total insanity. Vinyl sales have been going up by double digits year over year since 2008. That's just new releases. These figures don't include the sales of used records in record shops at record sales or online through eBay or sites like Discogs.com. The numbers also don't include vinyl sold at merch tables at gigs, and it doesn't include the millions of younger people who have been raiding their parents' collections for vinyl. No, no. People are deep into vinyl and are embracing or re-embracing the format more and more with every passing week. Why? Well, maybe it's a reaction to the digital age. People want something physical, tangible, something that they can hold in their hands. Maybe it's the idea that vinyl is inconvenient when compared to digital formats. Listening to a vinyl record requires physical presence and care. Or maybe it's the warm, real sound of the audio. Whatever. I'm always getting email from people who want to know more about vinyl as they seek to have, let's call it a closer relationship with their music collection. So, okay, you ask for it. Here's more about vinyl than you ever needed to know. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Welcome again, I'm Alan Cross, and we are about to take a very deep, deep dive into the world of vinyl trivia. And by the time we're done, it's my hope you will know more weird stuff about your vinyl record collection than you ever thought possible. And since we began with a song about rotational speed, uh, let's begin there. Most turntables sold today can accommodate records designed to play at two speeds. The long-playing album, which spins at 33 and a third revolutions per minute, and the 7-inch single, which turns at 45 RPM. Why those speeds? What is magical about those numbers? Okay, wait a second, hang on. We're, we're actually getting a little ahead of things. If we're going to do this right, we have to go back to the very beginning. The guy who came up with the idea of storing music on two sides of a flat-spinning disc was Emil Berliner. The first turntable was called a gramophone. And when it was introduced, gramophone was a trade name, just like aspirin or Kleenex. Gramophones and gramophone records first went on sale in the early 1890s. The records were meant to play at, and this is a quote, 
about 70 RPM. The reason for this approximation is because this was before the age of electric motors and gramophones. You had spring-wound mechanisms providing the power. You had to wind it up. By the end of the 19th century, the record industry had expanded to the point where some standards were required. A handbook published for those who made records recommended the use of governors, devices that would ensure that all turntables turned at a standard speed. So why was 78 RPM chosen? Honestly, nobody remembers. The most likely reason is that whoever wrote the handbook had a machine that turned at that speed, which is about, I guess, 70 RPM. So that one machine thus became the reference for all that followed. I wish the reason were more glamorous than that, but uh, nope, that appears to be the truth. So we're done, right? Well, no. By the time we got to the 1920s, turntables were powered by electric motors. Now, in the age of electric, it should be simple to build something that turned at exactly 78 RPM, right? Well, again, no. The standard propulsion motors that were selected to power turntables ran at 3600 RPM with a gear ratio of 46 to 1. So 3600 divided by 46 equals 72.26 RPM. Close enough. But that still wasn't the end of it. The speed at which your turntable turned depended on the nature of the electricity flowing from the wall socket. If your electrical company supplied alternating current at 50 hertz, your turntable rotated at 77.92 RPM. If the juice came at 60 hertz, the speed was 78.26 RPM, which was perfect for that 46 to 1 gear ratio, but still three one thousandths of a percent over an even 78. It took a few more years for technology to allow everything to be locked in at a proper and exact 78 revolutions per minute. Okay, it took that long to get here, but are, are we clear on where 78 RPM came from? Okay, good. Now let's talk about the 33 and a third RPM LP. That's a dumb number. Okay, it's exactly a third of 100, but why was that speed, 33 and one third revolutions per minute, chosen? Uh, to understand, we need to do some geometry. The 78 RPM record was 10 inches in diameter. Music was stored in a continuous spiral groove that started from the outside and ended near the label in the center of the record. The spacing of the grooves depended on the length of the spiral required for storing one song. A longer song required a longer spiral. Now, because your diameter is set, the only way to make a longer spiral on this record is to place the grooves closer together. And because you don't have so much space on that 10-inch diameter, and because there was a hard limit in how close you could space those grooves apart, there is a limit to the length of the spiral. Therefore, that defines the length of any musical piece on that one side of a record. Taking all this into consideration, the diameter of the record, the diameter of the grooves, the rotational speed, and so on, you end up on a 78 RPM record with a spiral that's about 270 feet long. That's about enough for four minutes of music. Not a lot. There had to be a way to jam more grooves and thus more music onto the side of a record. So you didn't have to keep getting up and turning it over and changing the record. 
1931, RCA introduced a new type of record. This was just as movies began to have sound. Motion pictures came on standard reels of 1,000 feet of 35mm film. Based on frame rate, how fast projectors fed the film through the projector, that was good for 11 minutes of viewing. To match up sound and film, a company called Vitaphone introduced a system that used one of those 3600 RPM motors to rotate a disc. And to make the audio last 11 minutes, and thereby last an entire reel of film, the math said that a motor required a 108 to 1 gear ratio. So 3600 divided by 108 equals 33 and a third. RCA, the record company, tried to introduce the new records to the general public. But this was the time of the Great Depression, so nobody was in the mood. So in an extremely silly move, RCA let all the patents expire. Fast forward to the late 1940s. RCA's rival, Columbia Records, picked up on the older technology as they were experimenting with a new substance called polyvinyl chloride, which first went into use in the 1920s for sewer pipes. Vinyl, as it was called, was much more durable than the shellac compounds used with 78s. Not only did it take much, much longer to wear out, but the toughness of vinyl meant that the grooves could be placed much closer together and played with a needle that was much, much tinier, more sharp. And not only that, you could also store more information in grooves that were smaller in diameter. Columbia called these micro-grooves, and they found that they could press a record with a spiral that was not 270 feet long, but over 1,600 feet long. Doing the math, pi times 33 and a third times the outside diameter of the grooves plus the inside diameter of the grooves divided by two, you end up with up to 24 minutes of music per side on one of these LPs. And in case you don't know, LP stands for long playing. I tried all the major brands. I played all my favorite bands. The salesman couldn't understand what I wanted. What I wanted. So we've tackled the reasons explaining 78 and 33 and one third RPM records. What about the seven inch single that spins at 45 RPM? And let me stop you right here. It has nothing to do with the fact that 78 minus 33 equals 45. Not true. When RCA realized that Columbia had beaten them with their own expired patents, they were pissed. They didn't want to license back the new technology from Columbia either. They chose to fight back with a different format. RCA's thinking was like this. People have been completely satisfied with records that feature just one song per side for 50 years. So why change it? Their solution was to come up with their own type of record, also made from polyvinyl chloride, except that theirs would be 7 inches in diameter and spin at 45 RPM. Okay, so why that speed? Again, we have to look at math and geometry. It has to do with the curvature of the grooves of a record. As the stylus gets closer to the center, curvature increases and its relative speed slows down. Yes, 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 in the case of the LP, the platter is still turning at 33 and one-third times every minute, or 1.8 revolutions per second. If the stylus is on the outer edge of the record, it has a much longer way to go per rotation. But as it spirals towards the center, more and more information has to be jammed into each groove. Again, the groove with each rotation has to have as much information in it as a groove on the outer edge of the record, which is longer. You got that? 
The result is an increase in distortion and a loss of high frequencies the closer you get to the middle of the record. This is a major reason why the best songs and singles from an album are often sequenced towards the outer edge. You want them to sound better. However, RCA discovered that if a disc spun at 45 RPM, there's a 35% increase in groove velocity, which greatly reduces the loss of high frequencies and results in less distortion. The issue is that you have 35% less time for music, but RCA thought that was a fine trade-off. They could say that their 45 RPM record sounded better. There was another advantage, too. RCA was an electronics manufacturer, and this brings us to the size of the 7-inch hole. The standard size for the hole on an LP is one half inch. RCA made the hole in the 45 1.5 inches. Why would they do that? Well, a couple of reasons. First of all, RCA wanted their format to crush Columbia's LPs, so they began selling turntables that could only play 45s. The thinking was that once someone bought one of these turntables with the big fat spindles, they were theoretically locked into buying music in that format from then on. It was just like the future VHS beta and Blu-ray HD video wars. But there was also a more scientific reason for the larger hole. When a new 45 dropped from the spindle onto the platter of the turntable, it was required to spin up from a dead stop to 45 RPM almost instantly. This torque tended to cause small holes to go out of round very quickly, causing the record to wobble as it spun. The larger hole allowed the sudden rotational force to be distributed over a longer path, pi times 1.5 or about 4.712 inches. That reduced wear and allowed the hole to stay round longer. This was especially important for the jukebox industry. In the 1940s and 1950s, jukeboxes were big, big business. So much of the record industry's revenue depended on stocking jukeboxes, and jukebox operators couldn't have popular records being rendered unplayable by a warped center hole. One more note about that big hole. RCA's turntable encouraged people to stack as many singles onto that tall, fat spindle in the middle. Once one record stopped playing, the tone arm automatically swung back, and the next record dropped onto the platter. See, said RCA, you can stack up to an hour's worth of music on the spindle. That's way better than the puny 22 minutes on an LP. That bigger hole did a lot of things. Basically, though, we can sum it up this way. It facilitated the dropping of the disc onto the platter, which was a distance of three or four inches. RCA's plan did not work out exactly as they had hoped. Other turntable manufacturers started making machines that spun at 78, 33, and 45. The big hole problem was solved by a little insert that allowed 45s to fit over standard spindle. So we ended up with an uneasy piece. LPs were designated for good music, like jazz, classical, original Broadway cast recordings, that kind of thing. The stuff for adults, who frankly were the only people who could afford these things. 45s became the format for popular music. They were cheap to manufacture, cheap to buy, and were the perfect way to send out individual songs to radio stations. And it just so happens that the rise of the 45 came at exactly the same time as this new thing called rock and roll. The marriage was perfect.
The Alarm with 45 RPM, an ode to the 7-inch single released in 2004. You might find that credited to the Poppy Fields, but no, no, that was, that was always The Alarm. You would think that we would be done with record speeds by now, but no. Back with more on that topic in just a second. We are taking a stupidly deep dive into vinyl. The goal is to answer questions that you didn't know needed to be asked. And we're back to the concept of record rotational speeds. There was a period of time when record players were manufactured to operate at four speeds, 33 and a third RPM, 45, the old 78, and 16 and two thirds RPM. Those slow records were used for spoken word records, releases for kids, and also, wait for it, an in-dash turntable sold as an option in Chrysler cars in the 1950s. Now, they weren't very good. The turntables bounced around no matter what you did, and less than 50 titles were released. Plus, you could only buy them at Chrysler dealers. Special audiobook records were once manufactured for the blind with speeds of 24, 8 and 1 3rd, and 4 and 1 6th RPM. Because these recordings were just of the human voice reading something, high fidelity wasn't an issue. That was sacrificed in interests of capacity. But the slowest turning record ever made was created by Jack White's Third Man label. On the occasion of the label's third anniversary, they released a special series of records that spun at just 3 RPM. Third Man, three years, get it? This record contained every Blue Series single from Third Man. Total gimmick for a party never really designed to be played. And this isn't the first time that Jack got creative with size and speed. In 2005 and 2006, the White Stripes sold tiny records and tiny turntables called the Triple Inchophone. A half dozen or so mini records were pressed up, and yes, you could play them. Then in 2019, Jack got together with Crosley to create a working turntable that played a three-inch record. This was one of the three-inchers created. It's Jack's band, The Raconteurs, with the song Store-Bought Bones. Raconteurs and store-bought bones, available in 2019 on a 3-inch record. I wonder what speed it plays at. I, I don't know. Okay, let's continue to riff on the subject of record diameters. We have the 12-inch LP and the 7-inch single. And then there's the 10-inch 78 RPM record, of course. I also have a number of 10-inch vinyl EPs in my collection from bands like Smashing Pumpkins and Live. But as we saw with Jack White... There is no law about record diameters. Speed is important. Diameter, not so much. The biggest records ever made were 50 centimeters, which is about 20 inches. They were seen in Europe between 1900 and 1930. They had way more capacity than the standard 10-inch 78 at the time, but they weren't very practical. I mean, what kind of turntable could handle a 20-inch record unless it was specially made? 16-inch records were used for soundtracks of movies. You started the movie and the turntable at the same time and hoped that everything synced. This was the old Vitaphone system that we talked about. Radio used 16-inch transcription discs for pre-recorded programming before magnetic tape came along in the 1940s. For a period of time in the first decade of the 20th century, several labels issued 14-inch records designed to run at 60 RPM. This was a challenge to the standard 78, but they obviously never caught on. Seberg, the jukebox manufacturer, had a side thing providing background music for businesses. 
All that music came from 9-inch discs that turned at 16 RPM, resulting in storage of about 40 minutes per side. Got all that? Here's another one from the archives. In 1980, the band Squeeze issued a 5-inch record that spun at 33 and one-third RPM. But space was so tight, the songs had to be mixed in mono. This was one of them. Before we leave the subject of record sizes, the smallest record I know of has a diameter of just two inches. There are two examples. One was a compilation, I know, a compilation on a two-inch disc, from a zine called P-Brain, six bands each playing a 10-second song. The other is from a hardcore band called Two Minute Minor. It's a 20-second song called Soda Tax, which protested against Cook County in Illinois, accidentally imposing a tax on a soft drink. Back to the subject of holes. Every vinyl record comes with a hole in the dead center of the disc. You slip that record onto the spindle and it's perfectly centered on the turntable, meaning that it will spin without wobbling the tone arm. That's important because you don't want to place any stress on the tone arm and the stylus. Like I said, that hole is 0.5 inches for an LP and about 1.5 inches in diameter for a 45, although many 45s do come with a standard size one to avoid the need for an adapter. Anyway, these two sizes came after decades of non-standard holes. In the early days of recorded music, a record hole was anywhere from half an inch to as wide as three inches, depending on the label. One label called Busy B issued records with two holes in the label area, so their records could be played on a standard turntable as well as a proprietary machine that's long since disappeared. I have one very unique album in my collection. It didn't come with any hole at all. In 1987, a British psych garage band called Gay Bikers on Acid released their debut album, which they called Drill Your Own Hole. Virgin Records released about a thousand copies without a hole, instructing fans to, yeah, drill their own if they wish to listen to the record. Clever? Absolutely. Annoying? Could be. Let's have a listen to this record. There we go. Cause you gotta get down, you know. Gay Bikers on Acid with Get Down, Shake Your Thang from a 1987 album entitled Drill Your Own Hole, which is exactly what fans had to do if they wanted to play the vinyl. Next up is the subject of parallel groove records. These were genuinely baffling. A record like this is created by placing two independent spirals on the same side of a record, effectively putting three sides onto a two-sided record. Which spiral you get, what audio you hear, depends on which groove gets caught by the stylus first. For example, the Monty Python people confused a lot of people with their 1973 album Matching Tie and Handkerchief. People couldn't figure out why they kept getting different audio each time they dropped the needle on side one. Drove them insane. This goes back a lot longer than you might think. In 1901, the Victor Recording Company issued a fortune-telling record 
depending on where you put the needle down, you'd get one of three different fortunes on the same side. 50 years later, the Fontaine sisters issued a single called The Fortune Teller Song. It featured four different versions of a song, each with a different ending. And this little gimmick didn't go away. Laurie Anderson, The Sugar Cubes, De La Soul, Fine Young Cannibals, Marillion, Mr. Bungle, Kate Bush, Garbage, and a bunch of others, including Jack White, of course, have issued something similar over the decades. Here's one that you can search for at a record show. In 1992, Tool released their Opiate EP on vinyl. Side 2 has a double groove that would either play the first track on Side 2, as listed on the record, or a song called The Gaping Lotus Experience, which is the hidden bonus track on the CD version of Opiate. Tool with a gaping Lotus experience, which can be found on a double groove on the vinyl version of the Opiate EP. Related to double groove records are those with locked grooves. Now, normally the grooves of a record are that tight spiral, which eventually leads to the center label in an area with no audio called the runoff groove. However, some artists have had fun with listeners by making the very last groove on a side into a continuous loop. So instead of fading into silence and seeing the label skate onto an area called dead wax, these locked grooves contain audio that comes as a complete surprise. And there are hundreds of such examples. ABBA's Super Trooper and Side B with unending cheering. The Eagles did the same thing with a live album. The Beatles did this with some editions of the Sgt. Pepper album. The final chord of the song A Day in a Life goes on forever. The track labeled as Infinity on Sonic Youth's 1986 album Evil is also a locked groove. Now, listen to this. It's from a San Francisco band called Flipper. They released a 7-inch single called Bomb. On the B-side is a single entitled Brainwash. It's about 30 seconds long. But when it ends... Um, okay, like... See, there's this... And but and then uh, never mind, forget it. You wouldn't understand anyway. It's over, right? Well, no. Um. Okay. Like. See, there's this. And. But and then. Uh, Never mind. Forget it. You wouldn't understand anyway. That repeats 12 times over almost seven minutes. And then those last words repeat in a locked groove. And, well, and then, uh, never mind. Forget it. You wouldn't understand anyway. There is a version on YouTube that runs five and a half hours. Somebody had way too much time. And here's something that could be almost as annoying, but not quite. If you have Arcade Fire's The Suburbs album on vinyl, side three ends with a continuous loop of the piano chord heard in the song, We Used to Wait. Arcade Fire and We Used to Wait. And like I said, for a surprise, get the vinyl version and see what happens at the end of Side 3 when that song finishes. 
This is a program all about unusual vinyl trivia and information, and I have a feeling that you're never going to look at your record collection the same way ever again. Let's revisit the subject of program length. When Columbia Records introduced the long-playing album in June of 1948, the amount of music that could be stored on a single side of a record jumped from about 4 minutes to 22 minutes. Since, though, careful manipulation of spacing of the grooves has increased per side capacity to about 26 minutes. However, some artists and labels have pushed those boundaries. Now, you got to be careful, though, because once you go beyond 30 minutes on the side of an LP, audio quality really suffers because the grooves are so narrow and so tightly spaced together. This is why those old KTEL records sounded so bad. KTEL used really cheap vinyl and jammed 11 or 12 songs per side. That meant the grooves were really, really close together. This same physical principle, this physical limitation, didn't stop Radio Shack from issuing a single album in 1974 that featured Arthur Fieldling and the Boston Pops. It had a running time of 90 minutes, so 45 minutes per side. It is the longest single-disc vinyl recording ever made, and it probably sounds just awful. There was also something called Trimacon Discs from the middle 1970s, all the available spaces between the grooves were removed, which opened up more space for music. The bad news was that you needed a really good turntable and a special super, super, super sharp stylus. Here are a few other weird bits involving vinyl. Stereo records started to appear in the 1950s. The first such recordings had each channel, the left and right, cut into separate grooves. This required a special double stylus that had to catch their respective grooves just so. That died out when technology advanced to the point where the left and right channels could be encoded into the same groove. Quadraphonic discs carried four channels of music, but they required not only a special stylus, but also a special amplifier, not to mention two additional speakers. Back in the 1970s, this tried to be a thing, but it was just too expensive for most people and quad died. And how about this? Who says that records have to play from the outside in? With CDs, the laser starts tracking the disc from the inside and moves to the outer edge. I suppose you could do that with vinyl. And people have. In 1993, Megadeth released their Sweating Bullet single on a slab of 12-inch blue vinyl. You place the tone arm on the innermost grooves on each side, and it followed the spiral to the outer edge. And this, to my knowledge, was the first rock act to try something like this. The one I have in my collection is a special edition of Camper Van Beethoven's Key Lime Pie. In 2014, it was reissued on vinyl. And to screw with fans, the song Closing Theme, which ended side one, was separate from the rest of the record. The only way that you could hear it was to lift the tone arm, place it on the innermost groove, switch the speed from 33 to 45, and watch it play from the inside out. That's just too weird, so let's just play the hit from that record. Windows echo your reflection When I look in that direction now Their face is haunting me Your face just won't leave me alone That is some strange stuff about vinyl, and frankly, it just scratches the surface, so to speak. Sorry about that. We didn't touch on things like matrix numbers, dead wax messages, multiple banded records, picture discs, discs with unusual shapes, hologram discs. So those topics will have to wait until the next time we take a deep dive into vinyl. Meanwhile, if you have any questions about this sort of thing or any sort of thing discussed in this program, just email me at alan at alancross.ca and I'll do my best to help. You can get the podcast edition of the show. Dozens and dozens of them are available. 
You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your on-demand audio, and they are all free, of course. If you don't subscribe, you should. I can also be found on my website, which is a ajournalofmusicalthings.com. I update it every day with cool music stuff, and there's even a daily newsletter to remind you of all that cool stuff. Plus, you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. There are so many ways that we can connect. Technical production for all this is by Rob Johnston. We'll talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.